Well, it's great to be with you, Salem Alliance. You're, uh, I, I was telling Barbara Fletcher, I've been hearing about her for years. Um, all good, all amazing stuff, you know, and, and uh, so it's, it's finally great to be here. I actually drove uh, around this place one time on a vacation. Um, when, when did you come to this site in this area? Yeah, this site. What year? So this was the site. So uh, we were on vacation, and I, uh, I, we were on our way up to Washington, and we drove around. But this is my first time uh, here with you, worshiping, and it was wonderful. Really enjoyed it. And uh, love your weather. Thank you for arranging the weather. Uh, we've had a really horrible, horrible winter in New York. So this is amazing, and uh, uh, really good to be with you. All right, I want to talk to you. Uh, about a, a kind of a subject that's a weird title, and let me explain it. Modernity and worldview and their impact on spiritual power. Okay? Um, when I was a kid growing up in western Pennsylvania, go Steelers, um, and uh, my dad was a pastor, uh, my favorite week of the year was missionary convention. And, and it was my favorite week because that's when we got to hear the stories about God moving and healing and people getting set free from demons, and miraculous intervention. And I remember hearing all these stories during missionary convention at this CMA church in, uh, in Western PA. And I remember one, time, one day going to my dad and say, saying, you know, if you could get some stuff like that going here, it would really help with church growth. And I can't remember exactly what my dad said other than calling me a weird kid. Um, but he, he said something like, well, really, that's only for missions. It's only for, you know, overseas. Now, in some ways, he might be right. There's a, a quote by A.W. Tozer, I don't have it here with me, where he talks about the miraculous always accompanies the church as it advances and ceases where it grows complacent. So there, there could be a sense in which uh, God loves to visit his church as there's an advance going forth. Now, my argument would, would be, since we are no longer a Christian nation, it's time for churches to stop being churches and start being mission outposts and begin to think in terms of how do we advance the cause of Christ in a decidedly non-Christian culture, uh, which means there's got to be the miraculous. There's got to be signs and wonders. There's got to be uh, a moving of God's spirit beyond just the rational, beyond just human programs. Now, Fast forward from my childhood into my ministry years. In 1998, I was on a mission trip to Lima, Peru with a bunch of uh, Alliance pastors. And on this trip, we saw three blind people receive their sight. We saw multiple hearing impaired people receive hearing. We saw a woman on her deathbed raised up, completely healed, miraculously healed of cancer. Uh, just amazing stuff going on in these, uh, these barrios of, of Lima, Peru. And as I was flying back, I remember praying, and I said to God on the plane, Lord, I don't get it. How come we see that kind of power, that kind of movement of your spirit in Lima, Peru, but I go back to Redding, California, and we're not seeing hardly anything. What's up? And, uh, you know, the Lord was speaking to me about a number of things, and part of what, which I'm going to share with you today but one of the things he said was this, those people have no other option. Uh, they have no access to medical care. They have nothing else. I am their only hope. But for you in America, I have become the God of the last resort. 
you can go to everything else before me. Now, again, let me say I'm not anti-medical, uh, anti-medicine. Uh, somebody asked, I teach a course called Divine Healing at the seminary and college, and somebody asked me once, what do you do when you get a headache? Well, I pray and I take two Tylenol, whichever works is fine with me, because I think God can use anything, but I do pray first. And I do think there's a sense in which we need to stop making God the God of the last resort and begin to make him the God of the first line of defense. I, I think one of the reasons we, uh, we struggle with the supernatural is not that there's sin in our life, not that we are you know, full of unbelief, but I think we have been discipled more by the era in which we've lived and our worldview than we have the scripture. And so hence this title, the, the word modernity refers to the last 500 years. And I'll do a little survey of that here in a minute. And worldview has to do uh, with how you are trained to view things and how your presuppositions influence your experience of reality. And, and we'll walk into that. But I want to start with this verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I used to look at this verse and, and read it very eschatologically, meaning end times kind of interpretation. Blessed are those that get holy and pure and get rid of all the sin in their heart because then someday when they die, they will get to see God in heaven. But I don't think Jesus had in mind just an end times interpretation here. In fact, I think here's a better way to read it. Blessed are the pure, the undivided, the unencumbered in heart, for they will perceive God wherever they are in the here and now. In other words, there's a sense in which if our hearts get encumbered with things, if our hearts get divided, then we begin to miss the reality of God's presence right now, right here in this moment. Okay, we know from scripture that what is going on in the invisible realm right here in this room is more real than what the person that you can reach out and touch next to you. There are angels in this room. There may even be some critters, you know, demonic spirits that are listening in, try to confuse, trying to harass. We bind them in Jesus' name right now. But in the spirit realm, there are things going on. And in fact, our perception of what God is doing can often be blocked, not just by sin, but by how we've been discipled and mentored. Let's talk about kids for a minute. You might have young people in church on Sundays. You might have them in youth group. You might have them in meetings. But the reality is they are being discipled and mentored in a worldview, in a way of viewing reality uh, many, many more hours a week than their parents have them or the church has them. And, and you've been mentored and discipled in the ways of the world, in the worldview, and by the times and seasons in which we've lived. So the question is, how did we lose our spiritual perception, our sensitivity and power? Um, here's the issue. I don't think it's that there's sin in your life. Uh, I think really good people, godly people, holy people miss the presence of God all the time. Uh, I, and I think it, it happens to us on a regular basis. So let's dive in here. Let me give you a little historical overview. Uh, the first part of this talk is going to be kind of technical, and then hopefully it'll get more practical. Now, for those of you that are writing madly, I will give you this PowerPoint. You may have it, so save yourself getting healed from carpal tunnel, okay? Um, you know, so, so it's yours. You can have it. In fact, all the PowerPoints we used this morning, uh, you can have. All right, let me, let me give you a broad brush uh, historical overview here. Prior to 2500 B.C., This is being recorded, too. <laughs> um, prior to 2500 BC, 
Uh, we don't have any writing. Uh, the Sumerians invented writing in about 2500, and so the only thing we know about uh, that part of ancient history, pre-history recording, comes from archaeology or from revelation. Um, and so we really don't have uh, a lot of historical information. But beginning in 2500 to 500 AD, you have the ancient world. And this is what you studied when you took Western Civ or World Civ um, uh, in, in college. And this is the era of the great empires, you know, the Greeks and the Romans and the Persians. And uh, certainly it's the era in, in which the scriptures were written, you know, the Hebrew scriptures as well as the New Testament. Well, when you get to about 500, and I'm playing, you know, rough and loose here with the dates, uh, certainly Constantine comes around and everything starts to change. Christianity becomes the state religion, okay? And so when that epoch begins to shift, things begin to change, we move into the medieval world from 500 to 1500. Now, every time there's a shift in an epoch of history, it affects the church either positively or negatively, and usually both positively and negatively. So uh, on the one hand, when Christianity became the state religion, um, the good news is they were no longer being thrown to the lions, you know, they were no longer being burned at the stake. The bad news is um, we lost what I believe was Jesus' intention for the church to be incarnational in its life. Um, and instead, the church became attractional in its life. Uh, in other words, uh, as soon as Constantine said, oh, Christianity is now the state religion, uh, we experienced the beginning of this thing we call Christendom. And it's, it's the mingling of Christianity with state power. And what happens here is suddenly the church stops being salt and light and kind of uh, ministering the life of Jesus wherever it is, wherever it goes, and we begin to build our buildings and invite the world to come to us. And so we move from incarnational to attractional Christianity. And the result is this is not a bright spot in church history. In fact, the, the most famous mission trips of this era are called the Crusades, you know? And, and so... It's not a real bright spot. So when the change in uh, epochs come, it affects the church both positively and negatively. Well, the next change comes around 1500, and it was a famous invention around 1500. Anybody know what was invented? You Really smart. I had a student one time at seminary go, the catapult. <laughs> and I went, how'd you get in here? Uh, no, <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> Bad Dean. Um, yeah, the, the printing press, okay? So now, catch this. The printing press comes along. And, uh, I mean, you think that's a great idea. In fact, you guys have Bibles as a result of the printing press. And, but the church didn't see it as a good thing initially. Because, you see, prior to this moment in 1500, if people wanted to know what the Bible said, what God said, they had to go to the priest. They had to go to the church, and so it gave the church incredible control over what was happening. And, uh, and, and so when 1500 comes around and we begin to enter the modern world, or what I'm calling modernity, um, the church doesn't deal well with change. So people that suggested we print the Bible in the language of the people were burned at the stake. So you take the most conservative Christian from the most conservative church in Salem, and you think, oh, that guy's really conservative. You put him in 1500, he would have been burned at the stake by the church for what he believed. Now, in some ways, as we go through this next epoch change into post-modernity, 
we're not necessarily burning other Christians at the stake, but we're seeing a lot of dissension right now because we're facing another epoch change. Now, I'm not going to talk to you about post-modernity. Um, I want to talk to you about modernity because most of us have heard a lot of lectures on the evils of post-modernity. Anybody heard anybody talk about how evil and bad post? In fact, we had an apologist, a famous apologist, come to the seminary. I won't tell you his name because uh, you would know him. And he was doing this lecture on the evils of postmodernity and how postmoderns don't believe in ultimate truth, which is not true. They just don't necessarily think they have a corner on ultimate truth, um, which in some ways is healthy. And so he's going off on this. And at one point he said, uh, you know, something like, uh, if postmoderns are going to be evangelized, they must return to the solid base of modernity. And one of my students raised his hand and said, excuse me, Dr. So-and-so, um, it sounds like what you're saying is that in order for a postmodern to get saved, they have to first get converted to modernity and then they can get converted to Christianity. And he, to our surprise, he said, that's exactly what I'm saying. And at that point, he lost the audience. Because if Jesus isn't the, the Jesus of all times and epochs, then he is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay? And so uh, we've heard a lot about postmodernity, and it, it has its issues. Listen, every single one of these eras is fallen and they can't get up. Okay? <laughs> Only the old people left at that joke. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so so uh, I, I'm not defending postmodernity. It has its issues that we'll have to deal with but not out of fear and panic, as Steve was saying on Sunday. We've got to deal with it by the power of the Holy Spirit and the insight that the Lord wants to give us. But often, we get so comfortable with the epoch in which we're living that we baptize things about that era and make it canon or make it Christian when Jesus really never had any intention of it being Christian, being part of our uh, canon of scripture. And so I want to talk to you about modernity. How has modernity impacted us? And let me start with philosophy and theology. First of all, for the last 500 years, it's funny, I, I, I feel bad. I wear these people out. You know? <laughs> could, could you wear my Fitbit? Because <laughs> I'll get a lot more exercise with you. I told Steve after Sunday, I walked five miles today. He, you didn't walk, you waved your arm, you know? <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> All right, for the last 500 years, from 1500 on, uh, it's the era of the enlightenment, okay? Rationalism. And what's happened is there's been this movement from theism to deism to naturalism. Let me define terms. Theism is the belief in a God who created everything that exists and he is still intimately involved in that creation. That's the theistic God. Um, that's the God of the Bible. That's what we believe, that God created it all, and he is still here, he is still present, he's still involved. Well, during the last 500 years, as we began to uncover kind of the scientific natural law and things behind um, uh, the creation, uh, there was this movement to a belief in a God who created everything that exists, set up certain natural laws, and left. And so deism believes, yes, God created, but he set up the natural law and he is now uninvolved with his creation. And, and the reason deists do that is they like to hang on to the idea of God, you know, because grandma believed in God and, you know, there's something kind of comforting of believing that there's something out there. But the reality is they 
also see that there are scientific reasons behind the creation and uh, they're figuring things out. And so uh, deism is this uh, worldview that's emerged over the last 500 years. Thomas Jefferson was one of our founding fathers, one of the most famous deists. Uh, if you remember, Jefferson edited the scriptures and he took out everything that would suggest that God can be intimately involved in his world. And so it's kind of a deistic translation. Now here's the problem with deism. It's not a stable worldview. Um, it's the blending of two worldviews, and so you cannot live there for long. You're either going to have to go back to theism, that there's a God who created and he's intimately involved, or you're going to slide into naturalism, which in essence says man is the measure and the measurer of all things. There is no God. Um, if you want to read more on this, I, I would encourage you to pick up a book by James Sire called The Universe Next Door. And it's uh, published through InterVarsity. It's an excellent book on worldview and, and some of this progression. And so what's happened is with this increased naturalism, it has now culminated in a God is dead philosophy. And, and we are seeing a growing body of literature uh, from the atheists. You know? And uh, in fact, if you look on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, uh, several of the books uh, in the last year have been on atheism and this growing uh, philosophy. In fact, the fastest growing religion in America right now. Do you know what it is? None. Uh, that is the fastest growing category in those surveys. And so what's happening, and we're watching it around it, Dostoevsky said, if God is dead, then everything becomes permissible. And so, you know, all bets are off. People are, in essence, coming out of the closet. And I don't mean that just as a, a gay issue. I, I mean that with everything, it's almost like we've lost our shame. And why? Because when you begin to remove God from the picture, what Dostoevsky said becomes a prophetic word. Now, here's the good news. Good news is sinners are living with more integrity than ever before. <laughs> now, think about that. You no longer have to guess where people are. They'll tell you. Uh, it, m m there are less and less people faking it till they make it because they don't care if they make it. And so they're starting to be very, very honest about their issues. And so I think we're coming into an era where we have incredible opportunity to minister life and hope to people. Uh, it's really tough to help someone who's pretending to be okay. But it's really a lot easier when you can get underneath the surface of what's going on. And so I think it presents incredible opportunity. Well, the problem is it's infected the church too. Modernity has had an impact on the church. So here's what's happened. Uh, during the last 500 years, specifically the last 200, Christians began to fight science with science, subtly succumbing to modernity's prevailing worldview. Now, please hear me. I'm not anti-science. Um, I, I think we need good Christian scientists. We need Christians in all arenas. But when we begin to grab on to the tools of an epoch and era, they begin to shape how we think. And so when you begin to wrestle with the, uh, the mindset and the worldview of an epoch in which you're living, you begin to adopt the thinking patterns and they subtly erode the truth of how you're supposed to live as a citizen of another world. Because the truth is we do not live according to the principles of this world. There's a higher kingdom we live and serve. And so we begin to subtly succumb to that. Now, what's happened is 
we have Western Christians. When I say Western, I mean U.S., Europe, kind of uh, that Western rational mindset who say they are theists, but they live like deists. In other words, on a theology exam, they'll get it right. We serve a God who created everything and he's still intimately involved in his creation. But in terms of the way they live, they believe in a God, but they live as if he doesn't exist. They opt for the rational, natural reactions. They don't go to God first. In fact, here's an example. He becomes the God of the last resort. So if somebody comes up to you at church and you've had a medical issue and you've tried everything and you've been to every doctor and you've been to all the specialists and they come up to you and they put their hand on your shoulder and they say, well, brother, all we can do now is pray. You're in deep trouble. You know, has it come to that? We have to pray, okay? Now, again, maybe you guys are breaking out of that mold, and I think from what I've seen, you are, but I have to tell you, most of the churches in America go to everything else before they go to prayer. You know, James 5, call the elders of the church, kind of becomes a last resort and not a first line of defense. And I think part of that is, it's not because they're not godly, it's not because they're not good Christians, they're good people, they're godly people, but they have this worldview that has discipled and trained them to go to everything else first before God. Uh, you know, I, I don't have time to go there, but uh, there's a king named Asa in the scriptures. He was a godly man, uh, put God first. He tore down the idols. He, uh, he actually deposed his wicked grandmother, uh, which means he put God first even over family. But near the end of his days, he had a disease or an infection in his feet, and it says, that he did not consult the Lord, but only medical doctors, and he died. And it's interesting that here's a man who loved God. He was known as a good king, but he had a worldview issue, and he never consulted the, the Lord on this issue. And so Western Christians have succumbed to this. And so this naturalism gives birth to a rationalistic God-in-a-box theology. Now here's what I mean by that. It is the theology that you can go to almost any seminary in this land and learn. God no longer does those things anymore. He doesn't heal. Uh, you can't trust dreams. You can't trust visions. Uh, in fact, we have whole theologies built around what God no longer does. Okay? Uh, not to pick on a local seminary, but Wanda just graduated from Western. And uh, it was interesting as she would talk in some of her classes, people would look at her occasionally like she had a, you know, a, three years, you know, and five eyes, because sometimes she would talk in terms of what the Spirit of God was doing and saying and what God was doing at Nyack, and the people that she was in, a, in classes with did not have a worldview for that kind of Christianity. And so the reality is it's affected us, and, and you know, just so you know, uh, at your seminary in New York, I refuse to hire any professor in any area that does not believe in the gifts of the Spirit for today that does not believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that miracles are a possibility. Now, more than that, I don't want just people that have a theology for it. I want people that are living it. Because it's possible to have a theology for God being alive and well and intimately involved in his people, but we don't live it, and so we become practical cessationists. Okay? Now, here's where I want to push you. Some of you have gotten your theology right but you're not living it as radically as God's calling you to live it. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. 
I find that some Christians have been so burned by the lunatic fringe that we don't want to look like them. And as a result, we often avoid what God is calling us to do. Here's a quote from a friend of mine. Uh, we worked together in Reading for many years. Um, his name's Bill Johnson. Now listen, I, I don't care what you've heard about Bill Johnson. I used to go fishing with the guy. I lie about the size of my fish. I'm just telling you up front. My fish get bigger every time I tell the story. Bill Johnson is a man of integrity. His fish always stays the same size as they were the day they were caught, you know? So people will say to me, now, this Bill Johnson, do you think he's making this stuff up? I go, no, he won't even lie about the size of his fish, okay? So here's what he says. He says, there are many concepts that the church holds dear desiring to maintain a devotion to scripture. But some of these actually work against the true value of God's word. For example, many people who reject the move of the Holy Spirit have claimed that the church doesn't need signs and wonders because we have the Bible, okay? Now, pause there. You've heard that teaching uh, that is based on 1 Corinthians 13, that when the perfect comes, these gifts will cease, and their interpretation of the perfect is the canon of Scripture, and so as soon as we had Scripture, we no longer needed tongues or healing or prophecy, um, and it's a terrible uh, you know, exegesis of that passage because the perfect is the one we will see face to face, as it says later in the passage. It's talking about Jesus. And so when Jesus returns, guess what? We'll all be cessationists because we won't need those things. We'll be with him. But until the perfect comes and his name is Jesus, I believe the gifts are in full effect. So they argue that we don't need the gifts or signs and wonders because we have the Bible, yet that teaching contradicts the very word it seeks to exalt. If you assign 10 new believers the task of studying the Bible to find God's heart for this generation, not one of them would conclude that spiritual gifts are not for today. You have to be taught that stuff. The doctrine stating signs and wonders are no longer needed because we have the Bible was created by people who hadn't seen God's power and needed an explanation to justify their own powerless churches. Ouch. Okay. So here's what Bill's saying, and I think he's right that we have not seen God's power for so long that we've developed theologies to let us off the hook as to why we're not and to explain why we shouldn't expect to see it in the future. Okay, now, let me address two concepts and then we'll get real practical on, on what we need to address uh, in terms to see this as a reality. Worldview is the first one. A worldview is a set of presuppositions which we hold about the basic makeup of our world. And here's the thing. We don't even realize we hold them until our presuppositions are challenged. Uh, so for instance, what's wrong with this map? <laughs> All right, I, I have a dear friend from Australia and he said, finally, you guys got it right. Okay, uh, you put Australia front and center. Now, now here's the truth. I mean, first of all, who says there's only one way to view the world? Yeah, we do. That's right. Okay. Um, and the truth is cartographers for years have increased the size of America and Europe and decreased the size of Africa and South America. And so if you ever see a two scale map of the world, you will be amazed at how small we are and how large Africa, South America, and the other parts of the world are. But we've created this ethnocentric worldview that we think our way is the best way. And, and listen, I'm with you on this. I, when I went to Peru, they asked me to show up and preach at this uh, crusade that was gonna start on Saturday night at seven o'clock. And so I showed up at 6.30, nobody there. Seven o'clock, nobody there. 
7.15, the worship team shows up. They start to set up. Uh, I'm sitting there with them. The pastor shows up at 8 o'clock. The meeting finally begins at 9. Okay, I was the third preacher of the evening. I got on to preach at 2.30 in the morning. Okay, so I, I quickly understood that punctuality, which is a high value for us, is not really valued as much in that culture. And so our worldview affects uh, the way we view the basic makeup of the world. Uh, the second definition is called the flaw of the excluded middle. Now this is tougher. Um, this comes from James Hebert, a missionary anthropologist that I had as a prophet Fuller, and, or, or Paul Hebert. Here's what he says, and, I, and then I'll translate. The flaw of the excluded middle is a growing acceptance of platonic dualism during modernity, during the last 500 years, that caused the belief in the middle zone to fade away. A new science based on materialistic naturalism emerged. The end result was a secularization of science and a mystification of religion, and there's no connection between the two worlds. Now, let me translate what Hebert's saying. What Hebert's saying is that in the Western paradigm, uh, we believe in the other world out there. You know, God's out there and the spiritual world is out there, but it's really uh, meaningless to us. There's really no connection between that world and our empirical world. And then he says that during modernity, we have secularized science. We've taken God out of the here and now, and, and we even talk about terms like the sacred and the secular. And the truth is there is no division. God is everywhere. He is here. He permeates every, everything. And so Hebert realized when he was working in India that it was only Western Christians that did not have this middle realm. You see, other Christians, they believed that there was a connection between the spiritual realm out there and the earthly realm here. Here's how it happened. He had these new Christians show up and they said, missionary, our kids are sick because our relatives are putting curses on them because we've decided to walk the Jesus way. And so missionary, we need you to break the power of the curses and, and help our children. And Hebert says as a missionary, he remembers going, okay, we will give you medicine to help you with your children's sickness and we'll certainly pray for you. And, and what he says is, but their prayers were really impotent. I hope you feel better and that God comforts you in your time of sickness, you know. And he remembers these new Christians going, if your God has no more power than that, then we're gonna go back to our old ways. Because at least with animism, there's a connection between the spiritual and the earthly. And so many of the people that had chosen to follow Jesus began to fall away. And Hebert realized it was because there was this flaw of the excluded middle. Now, by the way, if you don't have a middle realm, you're a deist. There's a God out there, but there's an earth down here that he has no connection in. Now, by the way, if you read scripture, scripture has all three realms. And there's a connection between all three. And so this flaw of the excluded middle is something we all suffer with, okay? Um, now, let me, let me get practical. Let's talk about factors then that influence our spiritual perception. Because here's what I believe. Let me tell you where I'm going with this. Salem Alliance staff, you have only scratched the surface of what the Holy Spirit wants to do here. It's just beginning. And some of you are going, does that mean we're gonna get weirder and weirder and weirder? Yeah, yes, it does. I mean, I got good news and bad news for you. God will think you're less weird, but the world around you will think you're more strange 
like you're a stranger and an alien. Now, listen, I am not excusing people being nuts for being nuts sake, but I want to be a radical citizen of the kingdom of heaven in a foreign uh, environment. And, and I want to follow him and his voice uh, without a divided heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, the undivided, the unencumbered, for they will perceive God wherever they are. Okay, so what are the factors? Well, worldview. I talked about worldview already, but let me give you a passage of scripture. Acts chapter 14. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. Now, r remember this. This guy um, was not born, learned to walk, and then became crippled. He was crippled and had never walked. So if there's a miracle, there's not only got to be a miracle in his uh, structure of his feet, but there's got to be a rehabilitative miracle if he walks immediately because he had never learned to walk, okay? So Paul looked at him. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed. Stop. How do you see that someone has faith to be healed? How do you see that? I mean, was this guy laying on a pallet going, oh, pick me, pick me? I, I don't think so. I don't think so because the text doesn't suggest that. Can I suggest that there are spiritual, spiritual senses that we have not developed with our Western rationalistic discipleship models? Can, can I suggest that the Lord not only wants you to have the kind of vision that can read books, but he wants you to have the kind of vision that can discern what's going on in people's lives, okay? He wants you to have spiritual hearing, spiritual discernment, so that you are looking and seeing what the Father is seeing. Okay, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will perceive God wherever they are. Let me give you another example. Do you remember in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus meets his first demon, and the demons cry out, Jesus, we know who you are. Have you come to destroy us? Isn't it interesting that the demons had more spiritual perception than the people? And I think it's because they were spirit beings. And so it's not till much later when uh, we have the Mount of Transfiguration, suddenly Peter sees Jesus as he always had been, but he could not see him that way. His perception was flawed. And so I think there's a spiritual perception that's, that's there and we're really needing to develop. So he called out, stand up on your feet. And at that, at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. So even then they had some deistic tendencies. The gods who are out there um, have broken through that invisible realm and they've come down to us. And if you remember, Paul rips his clothes and it says, no, I am not God, but I want to tell you about a God who through Jesus Christ allows ordinary people to do the supernatural. And that's the message that he proclaims. So worldview can be a factor in influencing our spiritual perception. Number two, your limitations of experience can affect your perception of spiritual power and what God is doing. In other words, if you have grown up in a church environment where there was not much happening or where there was abuse I have to say it two ways because when I teach at Nyack, I've got these evangelical kids that are coming from white churches where they've seen nothing. And then I've got these black kids that are coming from Pentecostal church where they've seen everything abused. And, and so the limitations of experience or 
Abusive experiences can shut people down to the reality of what God wants to do. Let me give you an example. So you guys know Terrence Nichols, right? They don't. They don't. You do. Okay, Terrence is a black pastor from San Francisco, CMA, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance, good guy, great theology. We had him come out to Nyack a few years ago. Um, this was about 10 years ago, wasn't it? And uh, man, he preached. He didn't just preach, he preached. And uh, it was awesome. And then when he finished his sermon, this one night, he starts calling out words of knowledge. And this was way outside our box, okay? We were not used to this. And he, he yelled out, and I remember the one, he says, there's a young man here, your car broke down today, but God has a plan. Uh, you're gonna have a new car before you, know, you go to bed tonight. Come on up here. And this kid comes up crying. Uh, to complete that story, the kid got back to the dorm. He had a phone call waiting from his grandparents. They said, we want you to have our car. Yeah, I mean, it was way cool stuff like that happening. But one of the things that happened is Terrence started praying for people and they started falling over. And we didn't know what to do with that. In fact, the first three hit the floor and bounced. We didn't know enough to catch them, okay? <laughs> so finally we decided maybe we better catch them. So we sent some people up to catch them. And so, you know, <laughs> I mean, we, we didn't know. It was, we were like, whoa, this is weird. Um, but Terrence, we trusted Terrence and the word was clear, you know. Well, this girl comes running up to me an Alliance Preacher's Kid, and she grabs me. She says, Professor Walborn, you need to get up there and stop this. This is not of God. And I said, okay, her name was Kelly. I said, Kelly, why do you want me to stop this? She said, because, you know, this is not of God. I said, why don't you think it's of God? She says, because I've been in church my whole life and I've never seen anything like this. Limitations of experience, okay? I said, Kelly, let me ask you a question. And I knew the church Kelly came from. I knew her dad. Um, her church was from Western PA, where I grew up, okay? And uh, she said, uh, yeah. She said, I'll answer some questions. I said, all right. When was the last time you saw anybody get saved at your church? She said, oh, I don't remember. I said, when was the last time you saw anybody get baptized at your church? She said, well, not for a long time. In fact, we, we store our sound equipment in the baptismal tank. I go, oh, that's good, nice and dry, you know? <laughs> I said, when was the last time you saw anybody get healed at your church? She said, oh, we don't, we don't believe in that. Now, this is a Christian and Missionary Alliance church. Jesus, our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. And I said, well, Kelly, let's go up and see what God's doing. So we went up to the front. I grabbed her by the hand, and there was a young African-American guy laid out on the floor, just kind of resting in the spirit. And we pulled up two chairs and just sat there. <laughs> And uh, I said, all right, just pray for him. Just pray for him. You believe in that, don't you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so we start praying. Well, you know how if you're, even if you have your eyes closed, you can tell if somebody's watching you? So all of a sudden, he opens one of his eyes, <laughs> sees two white people staring at him, you know, probably scared him. And uh, he said, can I help you? <laughs> I said, no, I mean, just keep receiving. We're praying with you. And when you're done, we want to, you know, talk with you about what God was doing. He said, okay, and he closed his eyes again. And after about 10 minutes, he gets up, and, uh, and I said, what was God doing? He said, well, when I came to Nyack, I knew I had a call in my life, but I've run from that call, and tonight Jesus called me back. And I've dealt with things in my life that I know were not pleasing to him, and tomorrow I'm going to the registrar's office, and I'm changing my major to pastoral ministries. I'm not running from him anymore. 
and he's weeping. And I look at Kelly and she's weeping. And I go, Kelly, does this sound like Jesus to you? She said, yes, but it's so far outside my comfort zone. Now, here's a key issue. When you're living in modernity and modernity has discipled you, your comfort zone will become your discernment. Okay? And, and I got news for you. God does have a gift of discernment. We need to make sure that the message that's being preached is Jesus and Jesus only. We need to make sure that in the midst of manifestations, we are discerning, is this the Father? Is this God? Is this demonic? Is this flesh? We do need discernment, okay? We need to discern, is the fruit that's coming from this good? And so there's a place for discerning. Not everything supernatural is of God. I get that. And so we don't want to baptize everything just because it's supernatural but we need discernment that's not based on our comfort zone because God's about to demolish your comfort zone. So if you don't have a discerning gifting that goes beyond what you're comfortable with, then you're going to be in trouble. And so we've got to get beyond the limitations of our experience. Number three, the third thing that affects us is our personality or temperament. Okay, how you are wired naturally will affect your learning curve in the supernatural. Okay, for instance, let's do a little personality test here. Um, how many of you, uh, when you get into a pool, you like to test the water by dipping your toe in it? Where's our toe dippers? Okay, okay. All right, and the rest of you, how many of you are cannonball people? You don't test the water, you just run, and you splash the toe dippers, okay? All right, now, I have a word from the Lord for both of you, okay? Toe dippers. Some of you spend so much time testing the water, you never get in and swim. And so for, for those of you that are overly cautious, uh, I coined this phrase a few years ago, there is such a thing as unholy caution, where you live with such caution and fear that you never get in and swim in the waters God's called you to. Now, cannonball people, there is a word for you too. Some of us, I include myself in that category, have jumped into pools with no water. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, now here's the thing. Cannonball people tend to have a quicker learning curve, but we tend to break legs and arms and things like that along the way. And so it would really be good if we could use the people around us to learn how to grow together. Because I think as we walk in this, the discernment that we share as a group will help us as we dive in and swim in the waters that God has for us. Number four, uh, the fourth thing that will affect your perception of the supernatural, the spiritual realm, is your will. Is your will. This is a big one. Um, the people that most resisted Jesus were the ones that had the most to lose if what he was saying was true. And so the religious leaders dug their heels in because if this is true, we have way too much to lose. And so I, I think the hardest people to convince that God is doing something new and fresh are pastors and leaders. Because, and in fact, I think the hardest people to convince are those in whom God has most recently done a work of renewal. So when God starts to do something new and fresh, they resist it because he already did it in us. Okay? So that's why churches get angry at the church across town where the spirit begins to move and it starts to grow. 
And the other church that has most recently been renewed becomes its harshest critic. Why? Because we're losing members. And so what happens is we tend to resist when the spirit starts to move. Those of us that have the most to lose resist. I, I had a professor come up to me after I started teaching at NIAC. He was in his 60s. And he'd been there since I was a student. I had him as a Bible prof. And I started teaching divine healing. And we started to see people healed. And, and students were praying for the sick. And then we started to teach power encounter. And, and spiritual warfare became a reality again on the Naya campus as it did in years past. And he came up to me one day and he said, if what you're teaching is true, I've wasted my life. And I looked at him and I said, no, no. Man, you're a great teacher. I've learned the word from you. And he got tears in his eyes and he said, no, you don't understand. If what you're teaching is true, I have had a blind spot for 40 years. And my whole teaching ministry has been shaped by my blind spot. And I looked at him and I said, but your teaching ministry is not over. Jump in, man. God's doing something new. God's doing something fresh that really is not something new. It's the same old Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And to his credit, as best he could in his late 60s, he began to teach in a new, fresh way the scriptures that he had been blinded to. Sadly, not everyone does that. I find religious leaders that will dig their heels in and resist the movement of God's spirit. And so your will will determine your perception. And then finally, the sin factor, the sin factor. And, and here's, I put this last for a reason, because we usually put it first. We go, oh, the reason I don't see healing, the reason I don't see the supernatural, the reason I don't get prophetic words is because there's sin in my life. Well, you need to get over that because there's always going to be sin in your life. You want a biblical verse for that? John said, if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us, okay? Uh, now, I do think there's a sin issue, but I think it has more to do with the sin we're hiding rather than the sin we're dealing honestly with. Um, when I was at Risen King down in Reading, there was a woman in my church who called herself a prophetic intercessor and she scared me. Um, I was a little afraid of this woman. And she came up to me one day and she shook her finger in my face and she said, Pastor, the Lord hath revealed to me, and I knew it was serious because she broke into King James, uh, the Lord hath revealed to me, uh, and she said, I think thus saith the Lord, there is sin in the camp. And I went, duh. And I, and I, I don't think she was happy with my response because she shook her finger harder and she said, no, verily, verily, thus the Lord has revealed to me, there is sin in the camp. And I go, duh. There's always sin in the camp. That's why we need his grace every day. I said, the problem isn't the sin in the camp. The problem is the sin you're burying under your tent. What are you hiding? She left our church. Um, but yeah, but, the, 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 <laughs> but that would have been a lie. <laughs> and then there would have been sin in the camp. Um, listen. You guys are broken. You're flawed. You have not reached entire sanctification. You're not Nazarenes. Get over it, okay? That's a theological joke. You'll get it later, okay? Um, but listen, let me go with that. A.B. Simpson did not believe in the eradication of the sinful nature. He believed in the habitation of the Holy Spirit. He believed that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And even in your heart at times, 
that the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit is what gives us the power to say no to sin. And the reality is we're still struggling. And guess what? God loves to use broken people who are no longer hiding it, but like to walk in the light. See, when we walk in darkness does not mean we're walking in some kind of evil. It means we're walking in a concealed living. Walking in light means I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm not perfect. I still got issues, but I'm going to live in the light. And guess what? God loves to flow through imperfect, broken, hurting people who are no longer hiding, but living in the light. And so the sin factor uh, does affect us in terms of spiritual perception, but maybe not the way we think. All right. So we need a paradigm shift. And so some of you have seen this picture. How many of you uh, see only a older woman here? Okay, you see the older woman. How many of you see a beautiful young woman in this picture? How many of you see both? Okay, quite a few of you see both. Well, let me help those of you that don't see it. Um, uh, the woman who is older, this is her nose, and here's her mouth, and this is her chin, and that's her eye. Okay, so she's looking this way, the older woman. Okay, the younger woman is looking away from me, as young, beautiful women tend to do. Okay, <laughs> and so here's kind of the tip of her nose, and that's her ear, and that's her jawline. You know, she's looking that way, and I'm hoping that's a necklace and somebody hasn't slit her throat. Okay, you know, so, yeah. So, so now, listen, they're both there. They're both there, but we often don't see what is already there. Give me another example of that. Uh, several years ago, Wanda came to me and she said, you always get to pick the cars we buy. I want to pick the next car. I said, okay, what kind of a car do you want? She said, I want a Volvo. I went, ah, those are expensive. So we bought a used Volvo XC90. Anybody have a Volvo? They're awesome. Oh, yeah. So uh, we got this car and we're driving home in this uh, crimson Volvo XC90. And all of a sudden I look on the road and I see Volvos everywhere. Wow, look at, oh, there's one, there's a green one, there's a gray one. Uh, there, there must've been a sale on Volvos. They're everywhere. They had always been there. I just did not have eyes to see. Always been there, just didn't have eyes to see. Folks, God's doing a lot at Salem Alliance, but he's doing more than you're seeing. He's doing more than he, you're seeing, and he wants to do more than you're seeing, and he wants you to see it. He wants you, blessed are the pure in heart, the undivided, the unencumbered, for they will perceive God. So we need a paradigm shift. Now, how does that happen? All right, I want to share my paradigm shift. Um, in 1986, Wanda and I were, um, and then we'll take a break. Is that, yeah. Yeah. take a break? Okay, so hang on, you're almost there, okay? And uh, um, 1986, Wanda and I were at Mahaffey Camp and we were um, getting ready to take a church in Connecticut. And this guy at Mahaffey Camp in Pennsylvania spoke on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I grabbed my wife by the hand and I said, that's what we need. And we ran to the altar and we got to the altar and we knelt there and this guy came to pray for us and he said, what do you need? I said, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, okay. He laid his hands on both of us and prayed a prayer like in 30 seconds. And then he said, there, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And I looked at him and I go, really? He goes, yep. And I said, is she filled too? He said, yep. I go, okay. And we went and got a milkshake. Um, <laughs> the next day, <laughs> the next day, uh, and by the way, the way he prayed without expectation is a direct result of Alliance theology that says 
the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not accompanied by the evidence of speaking in tongues. Now, please hear me. I do not believe the only evidence of the baptism of the Spirit is speaking in tongues, but I do believe there should be evidence when the Spirit of God fills someone. But he had so reacted against the tongues thing that he prayed quickly and said amen so that nothing would happen out of order. Okay, that's my take on it. So we go get the milkshake. The next day, we end up in a fight together. And I look at her and I go, nothing happened to you last night. And she said, nothing happened to you either. I go, I know. And we got in this horrible fight, but what it did was it created this hunger in us. Now, by the way, I think the number one prerequisite for a person being filled, baptized, touched by the Holy Spirit is hunger. You know, I, I read a book once on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the guy said, you have to fast, you have to pray, you have to get rid of all known sin. You got to, you know, he was going through this list, and I went, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to do all that stuff. <laughs> and it depressed me, okay? But what I've come to discover is that in the midst of your ill-prepared place, when you get hungry for God, he loves to fill hungry people. But when you're satisfied with the status quo, he'll let you go. And so we got hungry. And in February of that year, my elders sent me to a conference in Anaheim, California called Signs and Wonders in the Kingdom of God. And I have no idea why this little Alliance Church in Connecticut sent their young pastor to this conference. Uh, but I ended up at this conference with a guy named Bill Randall, who some of you know, he was a pastor at Risen King uh, after me. And Bill and I were just young seminary students. And we show up at this conference and I mean, I am seeing things that are way outside my experience. We sang with a piano and an organ and hymnals in my church in Connecticut. They were shining the words on the wall with an overhead projector. That's PowerPoint of the 1980s. And, uh, and, and they are singing, and it's like they're making love to God. It's like a, it's such intimacy in their worship. And as soon as we walk in, my legs start shaking violently. And I turned to Bill, because he knew a little bit more about this stuff, because he was from the West Coast. And I, I said, hey, my leg's shaking. What's, what is that? He goes, I don't know. Ask God. I go, ask God. You know, and so then we'd come in the next day, both my legs would shake. Finally, by the end of the week, I'm feeling no emotion, but every time we'd go into worship, I would just shake violently. And I said, finally, I said, God, all right, what are you doing? The only thing I ever got from God was this. Ron, you need to know that you're no longer in control. And I'm a control freak. And I have... <laughs> I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, and really for me, I had to surrender that control. Well, Tuesday night, to make a long story short, uh, they announced they were going to pray for healing. And I said, okay, Jesus Christ, our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Coming King, I believe in that. Um, and, and the guy that was leading said, but we have some words of knowledge. And here I got a little freaked out, okay? Uh, because I'd seen the guys on TV going, there's somebody out there, you know, in TV land <laughs> that has a pain in their back. And I always wanted to say, yeah, I got a pain. It's not my back. It's about two feet lower and it's you, um, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, and to put it further, my first roommate at Nyack, when I was a freshman at Nyack, was a Puerto Rican Pentecostal from the Bronx. Yeah, and, and uh, the, our first night, he started praying in tongues in our room, and I said, you need to stop that, that's not of God. And when he didn't stop, I went over and I punched him and turned his bed over on top of him because I was afraid. And I didn't believe in this stuff, okay? So, 
Yeah. The rest of our time at Nike, he would look at me and say, I'm praying for your salvation. I'd say, I'm saved. He goes, no, you're, you're not saved. You're not saved. <laughs> so, <laughs> and yes, I wrote him a letter of apology years later. So, so we're there, and they say, there's a guy here who has a tumor underneath their right shoulder blade the size of a fist. And right in front of us, this man stands up. Now, here's one of the things I like. They said, listen, here the only superstar is Jesus, so we're not going to have any prayer lines. The body of Christ is going to pray and bring Jesus to people. And so we gathered around this guy to pray, and sure enough, he pulled up his shirt, and there was a tumor under his right shoulder blade the size of my fist. He was a United Methodist pastor from Nebraska. And so we gathered around him, and this lady um, who was older than I was was leading the ministry time, and everybody was praying in tongues. And I didn't pray in tongues. And so I'm standing there, and they're all going, she bought a Honda, should have bought a Yamaha. You know, they're, they're praying in tongues. I, I tie my bow tie. I untie my bow tie, you know. And, uh, and so I'm just standing there going, I'm standing there like this. I fold my arms. And by the way, this is a position we teach in seminary, where if you have no idea what's going on, you stand like this and rock back and forth, and people will think you know what you're doing, okay? So I'm standing, I'm rocking back and forth. They're praying for this guy, and, I, and all of a sudden, my right hand gets really hot. And I turn to Bill, and I go, hey, Bill, my hand just got really hot. And I said it just a little too loud. Because this lady that was leading the ministry time, she said, well, that's because you're supposed to pray for the tumor. And before I could say, because what was in my head was, there's no freaking way I'm touching that tumor. You know, I just was not going to touch that guy's tumor. Before I could say that, she grabbed my hand and stuck it on the tumor. And so here's what I prayed. This was February of 1987. I remember it like it was yesterday. Dear Lord Jesus, all I have is English. That's how I led. Okay? <laughs> and, and all these charismatics, they rolled their eyes, you know? I go, all, all I have is English, but I do believe you're the healer. And I prayed one other thing. There was not much anointing, not much, you know, power that I could feel or discern. And that thing shrunk underneath my hand. And I squealed and cried. I sat down in a chair. They all went nuts, you know, yabba dabba doo. They're going crazy. <laughs> I sat down in a chair and I was just going, hey, 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 hey. it wasn't tongues. I was, just, I was just in awe. And that night I wrote in my journal eight pages as to how this had happened. Maybe in the heat of the moment, it wasn't air conditioned. Maybe the lymph system drained the fluid from this guy's tumor because of how hot it was. And you know why? Because I was a naturalist. I had been discipled more by scientific rationalism, by modernity, by my worldview than the scripture. And folks, what I want to say to you is God has paradigm shifting events coming for yeah. this church paradigm shifting moments where those of you who have not seen much are about to see more than you ever dreamed possible. And those of you that have seen abuse are about to see, see it done in a way of grace and mercy where the kindness of God draws people in and then supernaturally sets them free. So uh, it, by way of instruction, where do you go with this? How do you do it? Uh, confess. It starts with saying, God, I'm sorry. I've made you too small in my eyes. Uh, I have lived with a limitation on the presence of God. Second, begin to reread the scriptures with kingdom lenses. So take off the modernity stuff, take off the worldview and begin to say, Jesus, I wanna see the reality of you the same yesterday, today and forever. 
and I'm going to start to believe for it. Third, get involved with a believing community whose worldview accepts the excluded middle and observe what's happening there. Well, you've already done that. You're here. Uh, I've talked with enough of you to know that theologically you're already there. And then start going for it, praying for the sick, asking the Lord to change your worldview by granting you a new experience of his present power and activity.